0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: A quick content warning. This podcast includes adult language and delves into difficult themes that include sexual assault. Growing up in Miami... Rene Rodriguez loved movies. More than that, he also loved film criticism. Rene loved reading the reviews of a local writer named Bill Foster, film critic for the Miami Herald. This is ironic because while Rene did not know this at the time, when he grew up, he would eventually have Bill Foster's job at the very same paper.
2: He was an incredible writer, incredibly insightful. What I also responded so much to him is that he was not a snob.
1: But before that ever happened, Rene visited a bookstore, and it was there that he discovered a book by the writer who had forever changed the course of his entire life. I
2: came across this book called Taking It All In by Pauline Kale, and it was a collection of her reviews, right? I didn't know who Pauline Kael was. So I turned to the first page, and the very first movie she reviews is The Shining. But I start reading her about The Shining, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is something different, because this level of writing and her voice was just something that I had never encountered before.
1: In the era of print film journalism, no film critic was more influential than Pauline Kale.
3: I'm Pauline Kael, and I write about movies for The New Yorker. When I write about movies, all my experience and reactions seem to come together, and there there's, uh, there's an exhilaration for me.
1: With her muscle car prose, an unflinching way of cutting down the filmmakers and actors that she didn't like, Even filmmakers who despised Pauline Kael for the way she reviewed their movies could not help but to respect her. This includes comedian, actor, filmmaker, and misogynist Jerry Lewis. Pauline
3: Kael. Yeah.
2: She's never said a good thing about me yet. But you like her? Dirty old broad. (laughs) (laughs) But she's probably the most qualified critic in the
1: world. From the moment he first read one of her books, Renee Rodriguez became a lifelong fan of Pauline Kael. And there was one quote by Kael in particular that Renee remembers more than any other.
2: Pauline Kael had a really famous quote where somebody asked her, you know, what's the role of a critic, of a movie critic anyway? And she said, the movie critic is the only thing standing between you and the advertising department of a studio that's releasing. If you remove the
1: critic from that equation and a movie comes out, there's nobody in between. As far as a guiding ethos, The concept that a film critic's role is to stand between an audience and a marketing department for a film or a studio is a fragile thing. There were times when even Pauline Kael herself would fail in this regard. But this would be the line that Rene Rodriguez always strived to toe when he started reviewing movies for the Miami Herald in 1992. Eventually Rene would move to New York while continuing to review movies for the same publication. I asked Renee what it was like to be a full-time critic, and what he describes sounds almost like a golden age. So those 10 years, I think, were magical
2: because of all the people that I got to interview, the fact that I was living in New York but working from home, um, and I was around New York Film Critic. But right around that time was when the changes started.
1: The changes that Renee is referring to happened in the mid to late 2000s. That's when dozens of professional, salaried newspaper film critics from around the country were laid off or reassigned by newspapers that had employed them for decades. Renee himself hung on longer than most. He was reassigned by the Miami Herald to write about real estate in 2018. With print film critics becoming all but extinct, that void in cinema culture would ultimately be filled with hundreds of online film critics, or in most cases, film enthusiasts. And nearly all of these writers were undercompensated Or unpaid, And while these self-proclaimed movie geeks might now chafe from this comparison today, many of them were also trying to replicate, if not exceed, the success of Austin-based webmaster Harry J. Knowles, the creator of Ain't It Cool News. On this episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will explore the death of newspaper film criticism which took place at the same time as the explosion of virtual or online criticism. And we will ask ourselves, what happened to that barrier between movie audiences and studio marketing execs when newspaper film critics were replaced by a horde of mostly white, mostly male writers from the internet? We've also got way too many metaphors based on animated movies. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 5, The Ghost of Neil Cumston. Ladies
4: and gentlemen, the star of Politically Incorrect, Bill Maher!
1: Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher was a lively, roundtable-style talk show that ran on TV for nine years. The show first aired on Comedy Central, before moving to ABC where it aired in the National Broadcast Network's late-night slot. The series came on weeknights and featured Maher, who always kicked off the show with your standard late-night talk show host monologue. After that, the host would bring on a panel of guests that would include celebrities, artists, writers, journalists, politicians, or anyone else who could think of something funny or interesting to say about the national headline topics du jour. The show was cancelled in 2002. This is due at least in some parts to these statements, which I'm going to have performed by an actor, that Marr made only days after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Responding to a statement that the terrorists who hijacked commercial airlines and crashed them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were cowards, Mars said,
5: We have been the cowards, lobbing cruise missiles from 2,000 miles away. That's cowardly. Staying in the airplane when it hits the building? Say what you want about it. Not cowardly.
1: As most who lived through this moment immediately after 9-11 could remember, this was an extremely patriotic, if not jingoistic time in our country. So when Bill Maher was denounced by the United States national government for making this statement on the air, this in turn caused viewership to drop and for sponsors to yank their ads from his show. The fact that Maher's show was ultimately canceled for this statement more than 20 years ago is ironic for one major reason. When you go back to many of his opening monologues, Bill Maher made statements on a daily basis that would get most talk shows and their hosts canceled today. After his cancellation... Marr would later essentially reboot Politically Incorrect into a less broadcast-friendly version of his show, the HBO series Real Time with Bill Maher. Even then, this monologue Bill Maher gave on Politically Incorrect about the 73rd Academy Awards telecast seems more offensive than anything he could say on HBO 20 years later, even without the ability to use F-bombs.
5: Some of the categories were a little strange. Like best makeup was between the Grinch, Shadow of the Vampire, and this guy on the corner of Sunset and Vine you would swear it was a chick. (laughs) That was good news and bad news for minorities this year. More Asians. Did you notice that on the telecast than any other year? Because Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 10 nominations. Did you see the movie? They were running across water, up trees, over roofs. Very cool. I just hate it when they drive that way. (laughs) But it was not a good night for African Americans. Again, not only no major nominations, but not one decent shot of Jennifer Lopez's ass.
1: This transphobic, racist, sexist, and yes, otherwise politically incorrect monologue was the way in which Marr opened the special episode of his show that ran immediately after the Academy Awards broadcast on Sunday, March 25th, 2001. Ridley Scott's violent sword and sandals epic Gladiator had just taken Best Picture
4: entertained are you not entertained is this not why you are here
1: and to commemorate the evening mar invited a panel of guests linked to the film industry these guests included oscar-nominated actress lynn redgrave e-entertainment television host and actress aisha tyler and filmmaker ted demi this oscar special also featured in his broadcast television debut Austin-based webmaster and film critic Harry Knowles of Ain't It Cool News. Harry Knowles didn't realize this at the time, but this would be his summit, the highest point he would ever reach in terms of exposure to a national audience. He would later appear on other TV news shows, his own show, and even an animated series. But none of these moments would be as big as this. Even then, the appearance was not free of conflicts. For starters there were moments when it seemed like Bill Maher had a bone to pick with Harry. During one segment of the show, Harry praised Oscar-nominated actress Ellen Bernstein for her brilliant performance as the prescription pill-addicted mother in Darren Aronofsky's tense chemical dependency thriller, Requiem for a Dream. I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon, millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. But it was after Harry's praise for Bernstein's work on this film, which was well-deserved, by the way, that Bill Maher immediately shot back.
5: I saw that one. It was stupid. Did anyone see this movie, Requiem for a Dream? Traffic is the movie about drugs you should see. This is a dumb movie where the grandmother gets hooked on drugs and her grandson. Because that's what's going on in America. Grannies are hooked on drugs. That's where the drug war should be filmed, in the old folks' homes.
1: In retrospect, when you now consider the thousands of, quote, grannies as well as virtually everyone else who was getting hooked on prescription drugs beneath the attention of the national media at the time, it would appear that Harry actually won this argument. But here is a point that Bill Maher made that night, which was probably true. Perhaps more true than even he realized. Bill Maher attempted to take Harry to task for allegedly giving positive reviews for films that would fly him down to their movie sets.
5: I heard a story about you that you were going to review The Grinch unfavorably. Then Ron Howard flew you down. You get on the set, you meet the people; they're nice, and then suddenly, *The Grinch* is a great movie.
1: Responding to the accusation about the 180 shift in editorial stance that Annette Cool News took on Jim Carrey's film *How the Grinch Stole Christmas*, a ghastly misfire of a family holiday film, Harry responded with an anecdote, telling the story of how he was hired to play a bit part in *Monkey Bone*, director Henry Selick's follow-up to *The Nightmare Before Christmas* and *James and the Giant Peach*. Harry said,
6: "They cast me in the movie *Monkey Bone*." I played a part in it, and then I called the movie the worst movie of the year, even though I was in it. They had paid me to be in the film. They had
1: flown me out, and I bombed the movie like hell. Fair enough. Harry Knowles did film a cameo in Monkeybone, the seemingly all-but-forgotten Brendan Fraser film that was plagued with production issues behind the scenes. You have humiliated me in public for the last time! Back in the pack! And it was because of these issues that Knowles trashed that film. Hard. But before this exchange occurred, Marr had this to say about film critics.
5: And by the way, you know what bothers me about critics? There's no criteria for critics. How do they get the job?
1: To which Harry interrupts by saying,
6: There's no criteria for a talk show host either.
1: (laughs) If we were making a highlight reel for Harry Knowles' relationship with mass media, there would be no greater moment than this. In the script of life, a fast-talking wise-ass like Bill Maher is not supposed to get swerved on by a self-proclaimed fat geek like Harry Knowles. In public, no less. This was perhaps the core reason for the success that Ain't It Cool News had as a whole. They disrupted so much of what had been the status quo at the time. Aside from taking a jab at normies like Bill Maher on broadcast television, Harry Knowles and his team of writers helped to redefine what was cool. Hence the name of his website. Comic book, fantasy, science fiction, and horror films were no longer worthy of mockery should an adult admit to being obsessed with them. They were starting to move from counterculture to mainstream. In the most specific terms, Anit Cool News was part of a movement that legitimized obsessions with these forms of genre entertainment from social liabilities into social currency. Speaking of legitimization, according to former Anit Cool News writer C. Robert Cargill, AKA Massoworm, that's exactly what the site gave to every person, idealistically speaking, who consider themselves to be geeks or nerds.
7: We were fighting for you know, a better Hollywood and for better movies for all of us geeks and fighting to you know, legitimize geekdom and, and remove the stigma from it. We took it back. I mean, that's one of the other things about Early Ain't It Cool was we were the first ones to go, hey, we're geeks. You can call us geeks and nerds. We like that. That's what we do. This is this is a community of geeks and nerds. What are you going to do about it? There's more of us than there are of you.
1: Returning to the comeback that Harry Knowles made on Bill Maher, what the laughter from the studio audience masks is this. Bill Maher most likely had a point. When Bill Maher said there's no criteria for who gets to be critics, the statement would prove to be more correct than he probably knew at the time. By the early 2000s, The internet helped to dramatically lower the bar for who might consider themselves to be a film critic i'm not saying that every person who wrote about movies for internet movie geek websites were bad writers i would not have produced this podcast if that were the case but as jeremy smith one of the better former writers to ain't cold news could tell you many of his peers who wrote about movies for his and other websites left something to be desired there was
8: a cheapening of film criticism because so many people could have a voice, and there were so many people, even today, you look at Rotten Tomatoes, and there are people, it's like, I'll read their reviews, and it's like, you, you, you know, you've seen maybe a, a few hundred movies, and you, know, you, you haven't done the work.
1: The online movie news boom might have started with Corona's coming attractions, Ain't It Cool News, and Dark Horizons specifically in that order. However, in short time, the web would be flooded with their contemporaries. Literally anyone who had a computer... Regular access to the internet and a Star Wars t-shirt were online, developing a homegrown publication devoted to internet movie geek culture. A quick story by me, I actually worked for one of these sites. Uh, It was created by this uh, kid who was still in high school named Dante, and uh, it was fun. Anyways. But just as homegrown fanboy movie news sites were starting to take off, traditional film criticism as we knew it at the time was
9: starting to do the opposite. I think the problem I had with the fanboy reviewers is that they didn't become more critical because they stuck to the kinds of films that they liked instead of being, well, like a generalist like me. That's film critic
1: Betsy Pickle. From 1984 to 2008, Betsy reviewed movies for the Knoxville News Sentinel out of Tennessee. Because her reviews were picked up by wire services, there were many times when the reviews she wrote would run all over the country, even in my own hometown paper. Unlike many internet movie news journalists who reviewed only the films they were interested in, Betsy reviewed everything. Everything. And there were times when her taste even surprised her own
9: editor. I loved Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I gave it five stars and the managing editor who had appointed me as the film critic (laughs) just moaned and moaned. He's like, are you kidding me? How could you Ferris Bueller five stars? He just thought that movie was so beneath him and beneath me. And I'm like, this is a gas, you know, I love this movie.
1: During the explosion of the internet, most newspapers responded by creating websites. These websites hosted all of their articles that people could read for free. The problem is that these articles were the same ones that ran in the same newspaper's printed publications that many readers used to buy with actual money. Money that covered things like, well, the salaries of the people who wrote these articles. Then suddenly, a lot of the same readers who used to buy newspapers stopped. After all, why buy a giant, cumbersome paper-based publication When you could read all of the same articles for free. And it's because of this that a new generation of readers grew up in the age of the internet and considered the idea of buying newspapers to be completely absurd. When newspapers cut onto this seismic change that was occurring within the psychology of even their most loyal consumers, it was far too late. Some publications tried to flip to a paywall model for their websites, but most quickly realized that there was no way to put that genie back into the bottle. According to former Miami Herald film critic Renee Rodriguez, when you factor in the economic challenges our nation faced as part of the Great Recession and the housing crisis of the late 2000s, newspapers were forced to lay off staff and had little problem deciding who to lay off first.
2: There was the Great Recession, right, in 2008. And everybody's hurting, including newspapers, because nobody's advertising. Um, and so you sit down and you're like, OK, we have to cut costs. Which of these positions are essential? So you, you're going to need a courts reporter, you're going to need a cops reporter, you're going to need political, you're going to need sports. Sports is a huge driver. Then you get to movie critic, right? The newspaper movie critic was a relic of when everyone read the
1: print paper. It reminds me of this old Gary Larson comic strip where Farmer is holding a hatchet as he looks out upon his chicken coop to consider which one to kill next. There in the middle of the farmer's chickens is this one bird that has this absurdly elongated neck. And for comedic effect, the farmer is thinking to himself, Okay, who's it gonna be? Who's it gonna be? I personally mourn the loss of professional film critics from most daily newspapers. On the same note, I also understand that when the going got rough for local and city newspapers, the choice of who to cut first was obvious. The fact that newspapers were paying someone full-time to watch movies all day and essentially court hate mail from readers by sharing their opinions, many of which were frequently negative, and occasionally even pretentious, made the elimination of film critics seem like a logical choice. What they didn't realize, however, was this. First off, according to Rene Rodriguez, the hate mail that he received was part of the point, as well as proof that he was consistent and doing his job well. When people are writing you hate mail, like like
2: one, one line that comes to mind is always like, you like a movie, I make a point to not go see it. And when you hate a movie, I rush out to see it. And I always took that as a compliment, and I would write back, well, that's great, because it shows you that I'm consistent. And that's what you want with, in that relationship with the reader. You know, you want consistency. So if you're saying that to me, that's not an insult. That's like a great compliment.
1: The other thing editors didn't realize when they fired their staff film critics en masse is that the final wave of American independent cinema that took off during the late 90s and early 2000s lost its greatest and most effective method for grabbing the attention of potential moviegoers. Here's Betsy Pickle again.
9: I mean, that was the glory era of Miramax and Fineline and and so many good movies.
1: Miramax and Fineline were among the film distributors that devoted themselves almost exclusively to independent and foreign films. Movies created by filmmakers as popular as Quentin Tarantino, Gus Van Sant, and Steven Soderbergh. They also distributed films by lesser-known but extremely challenging auteurs like Todd Solans, Harmony Korine, and Terry Zwigoff, nearly all of whom produced films that could no longer be made today, in part because of the subject matter of their movies, but also because the systems for financing, distribution, and marketing have all but completely disintegrated. Yet in the 90s, These are all the filmmakers who managed to make a name for themselves with low-budget movies. And they were able to do this in part because there was a large ecosystem of print film critics who cared enough to watch the movies they made and, when they were good or noteworthy, helped to market them to potential audiences. And I'll be transparent here. All the filmmakers I just mentioned were white men. But according to former Atlanta-based film critic Felicia Feaster, These print film critics also lifted the work of other filmmakers as well. I
3: I did really connect to those voices, you know, Jane Campion and Julie Dash. And it was just so wonderful to see, you know, women directors, Black women directors, Black directors. That to me is like the beauty of film in general is to like occupy for two hours this other reality, to occupy someone else's skin to get into there mindset and that's very fluid and flexible. It just seemed more vibrant and um, the people who were making films just were much more diverse feeling.
1: Felicia adds that her work as a film critic for the alt-weekly newspaper called Creative Loafing was an important step towards introducing these filmmakers to audiences who would have never considered watching their movies in the first place.
3: I don't think I had a national influence but I do think that I did have some regional influence. You know, I sometimes heard from directors or people who I had interviewed that they felt like I offered, you know, a positive like force in their creative arc or their their career that it was good to get some affirmation from someone for something they had done. So I would say my role was not super huge but important for Atlanta.
1: Without film critics, Felicia argues that new films with new stories by new filmmakers are now more challenging to produce and market than they ever were before. And it's just
3: that kind of scrappiness. I don't know. I don't know if it really happens anymore. So that was, yeah, a really special, cool time to be writing.
1: The reason I'm discussing the importance of print film critics at length here is because when they were laid off from their jobs, or transferred to new assignments within their newspapers, the vacuum left in their wake in terms of cinema discourse was this.
6: Blade 2 is the tongue, mouth, fingers, and lips of a lover. The audience is the clit. Watch your audience. This is where Guillermo del Toro goes down on the audience. It starts with long licks with a nose bump on the joy button. Slowly, he smiles as he does this, watching the audience begin to squirm. Then he takes the audience's clit in his mouth and just licks it like crazy. The audience. What you're is ready. listening to right now
1: is an excerpt of the review that Harry Knowles wrote for Guillermo del Toro's film Blade 2. That film was the 2002 sequel to the Wesley Snipes vampire thriller based on the Marvel comic book character of the same name. These days, it's impossible to search for Harry Knoll's name on Google or Twitter and not see references to this movie review. That's how infamous it has become. Today, the article exists in such notoriety that in 2012, the Seattle newspaper called The Stranger devoted an editorial about it. That editorial was appropriately titled, Is This the Worst Review Ever Written? Then later in 2019, Scottish writer Kayleigh Donaldson listed Knowles' Blade 2 review in an article devoted to the creepiest and most sexist reviews ever written. Knowles actually had two articles that appeared in Donaldson's lists, the other one being his review of the now-canceled NBC superhero drama, Heroes. In that 2006 review, Harry was obsessed with Hayden Panettiere's character, a 17-year-old cheerleader and presumed virgin. And because of her character's ability to heal from her injuries and wounds, Harry speculated that she would regenerate her hymen every time that she had sex. And normally when Harry says something outrageous in his writing, I have my actor Ben Jones read it for us. But I'm not going to do that here. If you want to read the review for yourself, you can. Otherwise, just take it from me. It's fucking gross.
6: I just want to stop the show for a second and say that uh, I really appreciate that, Joe.
1: Yeah, Ben, you're welcome. Um, Anyway... Drew McQueenie, a.k.a. Moriarty, who worked with Harry as the West Coast editor for In it Cool News, says that when Harry wrote things like this, Drew's response was to just keep his head down and stick to doing his own thing.
10: Um, it was not a professional organization. There was no sense of uh, hierarchy or structure. Pretty much from the moment I had admin access to the site, I just did my own thing. There was no point in going through Harry because we had very different opinions about what was okay to print. I have never been one for the overt scatological insanity that harry seems to favor in print and you know when he would publish something like his blade 2 review yeah that was not that was not my sensibilities and there were a lot of times where i just said just let me do my thing man because i I, am not going to do it the same way you will
1: the fact that harry knowles managed to get away with writing his blade Two review virtually unscathed for the next decade and a half is a testament to the almost uniformly misogynistic hell that was the internet during most of the 2000s. In an obit Harry wrote after the death of Roger Ebert, Harry even claims his Blade 2 review earned him kudos from the legendary film critic himself. Roger only
6: wrote one legitimate fan letter to me in my life, and oddly enough, it was over my Blade 2 review, which he claimed he was envious of. No shit.
1: Perhaps the only real consequence Harry faced for his more unhinged and graphically sexual reviews were a series of satirical film critiques someone wrote for Ain't It Cool News. These reviews were obvious jabs at Harry and Ain't It Cool News' typical approach to film criticism and were written by a person who called himself Neil Cumston. To convey the absurd and frequently transgressive flavor of a Neil Cumston review, here is an excerpt from his write-up for Zack Snyder's 300. This is Sparta! a high-octane CrossFit commercial disguised as a historical epic about the Roman Empire.
4: I just saw a movie that'll make your eyes boners, make your balls scream, and make you poop DVD copies of The Transporter. It's called 300. I don't know what the title has to do with the movie, but they could have called it Kittens Making Candles and it still rule. It's about 300 Greek dudes who stomped the sugar-coated shit out of a million other dudes. I have a feeling a lot of high school sports coaches are going to show this film to their teams before they play. Also, gay dudes and divorced women are going to use as screen captures from computer wallpaper. My final analysis is that 300 is the most ass-ruling movie of this year. It's probably going to be the king of 2007, unless someone makes a movie where a pair of sentient boobs
1: fights a werewolf. 300 would actually premiere at Butnamathon, the 24-hour film festival that Harry Knowles co-founded with the Alamo Draft House. The screening even included a Q&A by Zack Snyder himself. You could argue that in some way, this was square one in terms of the cult slash frequently toxic dumpster fire known as the Release the Snyder Cut campaign that is still burning on the internet to this very day. But back to Neil Cumston, what made his review stand out for me is that in many ways it was a parody of the type of writing one would expect from Knowles himself. It was also a character sketch or distillation of the frustrated white male nerd rage that you could see everywhere on internet movie news sites. This rage was sometimes benign or even goofy. And according to Drew McQueenie, for many online film critics, the displays of this rage expressed in a myriad of creative ways was a type of currency. We've learned. We learned, unfortunately, from guys like Siskel and Ebert and Gene
10: Shalit and TV critics who They have to have that punch. They have to have that snappy thing that they say that zings somebody. And the zing is your currency. But the zing is also kind of shitty. I I am good friends right now with a filmmaker named Joseph Kahn. And I feel so bad about the first thing that I wrote about Joseph that every
1: time I see him, I say I'm sorry. It still bothers me. The film that Joseph Kahn directed that Drew was referring to was Torque, a motorcycle action thriller from 2004
5: at 200 miles an hour.
0: There's little time to think. Less time to choose. And no time to stop.
1: When Torque was released in theaters, many critics drubbed it for being yet another knockoff of the Fast and Furious movies. Drew echoed this statement, but he didn't stop here. I still feel bad. My entire review for Torque and all
10: it said was, on a positive note, At least this is the first major studio presentation ever directed by a retarded person. And that was the whole review. And Joseph Kahn has forgiven me. I haven't forgiven me. That's a cheap, shitty thing to say, but it's the kind of easy boom that critics do that feels good in the moment, gets a laugh, ha ha, lots of people reply to it, and it adds zero to the conversation. And it's a very bad habit that I think we all pick up.
1: Drew's use of the R word, which he now regrets, barely scrapes the surface of the things Neil Cumston would say in his reviews. But the truth remains that when they were written, everyone thought Neil Cumston was hilarious, and that his reviews were intended as jokes. I know this because the person who wrote these reviews would later be outed as none other than comedian Patton Oswalt. And yes, I'm talking about the same Patton Oswalt who played Remy the Rat in the Disney Pixar film Ratatouille. Drew McQueenie actually met Patton during a live show the comedian presented, at the Largo Theater with musicians Amy Mann and Michael Penn. They released a movie on DVD. It was made in 1977. They never release it. It just now got put out on DVD this year, and it's
4: called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats People.
10: I'm not making, go IMDB this, this is a real movie. Deathbed, The Bed That Eats People. And it's about a bed that's evil and it eats people. It was such a great evening. And at one point, Patton was talking about being a movie nerd and, and what a film nerd he was and how he w- loved the internet because it was starting to be a real place for film nerds. And he said, I love this one site called Ain't It Cool News? And my friend was like, dude. And Patton started talking about us. And he started doing a riff about me and about something I had written. And it was the craziest feeling. It was really kind of an out-of-body moment where it was like, does anybody else here know what's happening? And, uh, I emailed him the next day and, uh, we just started going to see movies, the new Beverly and hanging out. And I immediately realized like this guy is one of us, uh, the, the real deal, hardcore film freak.
1: A quick note, Patton Oswalt wrote a great memoir about what can only be described as an addiction to movies titled silver screen fiend. It's hilarious. And at times moving. Plus it's loaded with lots of great recommendations for movies. Much of Patton's book also takes place during the time he would obsessively attend retro movie screenings with Drew McQueenie, among other people, at the New Beverly Theater. It was during this time that Patton Oswalt was also on staff, writing jokes for the MTV Movie Awards, which meant that he got to see a lot of major Hollywood blockbusters long before anyone else did. Drew says that Patton's early access to big-budget films months before the release gave the comedian an idea.
10: And so that's where Neil Cumston came from. He was like, I've seen some of these things. I don't want to write a real review because I don't want to like burn anybody. But I would love to do like just a fanboy poop your pants rant a couple of times about some of these things.
1: Under the guise of Neil Cumston, Patton Oswalt wrote more than a few of these so-called poop your pants rants about movies for Ain't it Cool News. The first of these rants was for The Matrix Reloaded, long before any publication could run a review of the film.
4: Jim Jamity Jesus Krispy Kreme Christ on a twat rocket. This movie blew me apart and put me back together. Only after I got put back together, I felt like I had 13 dicks and they'd all gotten blown by a surfer chick with 26 heads. Two mouths on each cock. I will see this movie ten times, and if I see Star Wars George or that gay Batman director butthole any time during the ten screenings, well here comes Mr. Punch.
1: Reading and especially hearing someone read, Neil Cumson Reviews Today makes it clear that a lot of what Patton wrote for Anic Cool News has aged poorly. I understand that Patton was parodying the kind of writing one could frequently read on the internet, and especially Anic Cool News. But the argument that even the parody of homophobic or misogynistic language is merely a repackaging of the hateful speech you are mocking is a valid one. Neil Cumson reviewed several movies for Anic Cool News, including Blade Trinity. A movie Patton Oswalt actually stars in. This all stopped, however, when, according to Drew McGuiney, Patton Oswalt was outed by film critic Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine. It was terrific fun until Peter Travers blew the fucking secret, and I still will
10: never forgive him. I don't. I've not. I've never bought Rolling Stone since, and I won't read Rolling Stone. I. It pissed me off so much. It was not his secret to blow, and you know, Patton had confided in him as, as a friend, and Peter Travers just. Said it one day in print. Hey, yeah, Patton Oswald, who writes as Neil Comston. That's the game, man.
1: And just like that, in terms of being a fictitious contributor to It Cool News, Neil Comston was dead. But the ghost of Neil Comston lived on via the many online movie reviewers who were building and joining new sites across the internet. The catch, however, is that, unlike Patton, many of these writers weren't joking. I should note really quickly that Patton Oswalt declined to be interviewed for the story, which is a shame, but also understandable. Even if his work as Neil Compton was intended purely as satire, Patton has clearly grown a lot in terms of his work as a comedian. He probably has zero interest in revisiting this chapter from his past. But if we did talk, I would have asked Patton if maybe he was channeling the ghost of Neil Compton in the character that he played on the Town Hall filibuster episode he did, For the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation. The following is an outtake of the filibuster Patton gave in this episode. It was during this filibuster that Patton describes the potential of a Disney-produced crossover between the Star Wars and Avengers franchises. We see Thanos! who was the oh, villain on. teased at the end of the first Avengers movie. Now, Thanos, as you know, owns the Infinity Gauntlet,
4: which has the time gem, the mind gem, the power gem, the space gem, and the reality gem. If he holds the reality gem, that means he can jump from
1: different realities. This will be our link from to the Marvel Universe from the Star Wars universe. Filmed in 2013, Oswald's unhinged tirade is a clear vision of Hollywood, That appears to be manifesting in our reality nearly a decade later. It's also a sadly accurate depiction of much of the cinema discourse that began to shift into the mainstream in the late 2000s when most full-time newspaper film critics lost their jobs. With the loss of these full-time movie critics, the films, aesthetics, and values of dogged independence that they championed were immediately washed away. They were instead replaced by a devotion to escapism, And in the worst examples, the worship of brands like Marvel, DC Comics, Transformers, and Star Wars, all of which were the property of huge corporations. This was in stark contrast to the kinds of films Felicia Feaster and her peers championed in the 90s.
3: I mean, I'm involved with... Two critics organizations where there are quite a few, you know, of this younger wave, um, more blog oriented critics, and they have, you know, as much respect for film culture as I do. It's just really different. I feel like you can't help now but pay lip service to whatever the big movie is that everyone's talking about in a way that in the past that would not be considered cool to be going on and on about whatever the big movie is fast and furious like that would not be cool but now i think there's a little more i don't want to say respect a little more credence given to that kind of film
1: what felicia is describing is very much a dinosaurs meet the asteroid moment one that reminds me of the sequence in paul thomas anderson's film boogie nights where all the high-paid porn stars of the 70s ran into the iceberg of the vhs era With the cost of production on adult films dropping, due to the invention of the cassette tape, which was far cheaper than 16 mm film, nearly all the professional adult film actors were replaced by amateurs. Fictional porn director Jack Horner, played wonderfully by Burt Reynolds, is confronted by this fact during this pivotal scene from the movie opposite a fellow producer named Floyd, played by Philip Baker Hall. You come
6: into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. But the future is tape, videotape, and not film. And it's
2: amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie
6: on videotape. Jack, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you stay one step ahead of the game. We're going in circles now. We're in familiar
2: territory. The territory we in is the future. Not to mention the cost. You know, if it looks like shit, and it sounds like shit, then it must be shit.
1: After this scene... Jack Horner's aspirations of creating erotic cinema that would be legitimized in terms of public perception was forever wiped out. This is exactly what happened to print film criticism during the 2000s. The key difference with print film criticism being that instead of VHS, their industry was changed by the internet. But the results were still the same. Many of the professional writers who made a living, in some part, praising small, independent movies, or new directors in movies that no one had ever heard of before, were suddenly out of a job. Betsy Pickle remembers when the hammer fell on her job at the Knoxville News Sentinel. The year was 2008. Barack Obama had just been elected president only two days prior.
6: If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still questions the power
9: of our democracy, tonight is your answer. Obama was elected and then on Wednesday, I was going around everywhere going, Happy Obama Day! Happy Obama Day! And on Thursday, I got laid off.
1: Betsy knew times were tough within her industry, but she also assumed her job at the paper might be safe because of the following her writing had garnered her within the community. Then a friend of hers tipped her off that this was certainly not the case.
9: I was at home and I got a call from uh, one of my best friends at work, and she was sobbing. And she was really melodramatic, which she kind of is, but she's a sweetheart. But um, her husband also worked at the paper on the copy desk. And she said, they're laying people off. And her husband was one of them. <laughs> and you are too. <laughs> and she was so like emotional about it that it sucked all the emotion out of me. And I'm like... Oh, well.
1: Knowing what was coming before her bosses at the newspaper had the chance to fire her, Betsy got prepared for that impending phone call in a rather noteworthy fashion.
9: Oh, and I knew they were calling. So I actually went and sat on my toilet and I was hoping to be able to produce some sound effects throughout the call. Unfortunately, my intestines failed me. I've never forgotten that. I was so eager. Anyway... Uh, The HR person said, you know, times are tough, blah, 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 and we're having to lay people off, and you're one of the ones who's been impacted.
1: Betsy was immediately released from her job. She never got to finish her last movie review, which was for the James Bond movie Casino Royale, the first to star Daniel Craig in the role of the iconic spy. Betsy never even had the chance to say goodbye to the readers who followed her work for more than 20 years.
9: That was before I was on Facebook, and I didn't even have a home computer at that point. There wasn't anything social media related that I could have used.
1: The closest thing Betsy Pickle received to a public farewell to the work she did in love for more than two decades was a mention on a widely circulated blog written by Salt Lake City film critic Sean P. Means. Ironically titled The Departed, this list tracked the print film critics who lost their jobs between 2006 and 2009. Each film critic was listed beside a number commemorating order in which they were laid off or reassigned.
9: I believe I was number 47. <laughs> I made the top 50. Um, I was totally stunned.
1: Actually, Betsy was number 43 on Sean Mean's departed list. Sean would allegedly retire this list due to the fact that it started to read like a list of just all newspaper film critics in general. In the years that Sean kept his departed blog, at least 55 film critics lost their jobs. And when Sean stopped keeping count, the layoff still continued, a move which Betsy Pickle believes was incredibly short-sighted.
9: They thought they could get everything off the wire, you know, but what they didn't realize or think through was that a lot of the wire service critics were people like me. I mean, it was just ridiculous. uh, First of all, did you really want to have, like, Five critic voices all across the country, and that's it?
1: With dozens of professional newspaper critics taken out of the picture entirely, many of the amateurs that remained were the children of Harry Knowles. Internet movie critics and journalists, many of whom would be referred to as bloggers, who wanted to make as big of a splash as Knowles did with Ain't It Cool News. The difference here is that while paid newspaper film critics wanted, or at the very least were expected, to write about the wide variety of films that were coming out, the mostly white, mostly male bloggers, all wrote about the same topics. Comic book movies, horror films, Star Wars, Star Trek, video game movies, and Zack fucking Snyder. It's a huge part of the reason I feel we all now live in a cinematic universe, or cinematic universes rather, that were created, in some part, by Harry Knowles. Where our conversation about cinema feels completely obsessed, or perhaps even capped, by just a handful of big-budgeted movie franchises, where major directors like Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, and Jane Campion are only widely discussed because of the fact that they have all come out and said that they don't care about Marvel or superhero movies, the cinema culture that is all but obsessed with superhero movies is one that former Anit Cool News writer Drew McQueenie seems to take some responsibility for today.
10: When you look at where we are in pop culture now, what
1: world are we
10: in where Into the Spider Verse wins an Oscar, where that movie gets made, where there is a world where the mainstream not only gets the multiverse, has not only seen enough Spider Man to know the difference between them, gets the whole playful. Pre- We've got Miles Morales in a movie now. We've got shit that we can't even fathom when we started doing this. Batman and Robin was the state of the art when this website started. Now, look where we are. It's a different world, and we definitely
1: help push the needle towards that world. What Drew McWeeny is describing is a relationship that Annick cool news had with studios that began after the release of 20th Century Fox's very first X Men film, which was released in 2000.
0: We are the future, Charles, not them.
1: They no longer matter. The many horrifying revelations that would come out about the film's director, Brian Singer, notwithstanding, going back to that movie today is a bit of a mixed bag. The cast was great, especially Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen as Professor X and Magneto. Plus, the discovery of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine was a revelation, but the very first X-Men film could have been much, much better. However, you would never guess that by reading Harry Knowles' first review of the film.
6: This film is our pilot to the Marvel universe. In my opinion, this is the most accurate adaptation of a comic book to film that I have ever seen. Sure, the costumes are different, but folks, that is just about it for me.
1: Harry would go on to write a whole second review of X-Men only to lavish more praise. But not only that, he also hit fans of comic books as well as movie producers with what amounts to basically a ransom note.
6: It isn't perfect, but damn, it's close enough. It's a start in the absolute right fucking direction. And if this movie makes money and it moves forward, then you know what? We might never see another fucking Batman and Robin embarrassment. Perhaps Hollywood will realize that you can invest more than $100 in this type of film and make something great beyond all belief.
1: What you're hearing now is not an example of film criticism. It was what would later be called Film Enthusiasm. Film Enthusiasm is a catch-all phrase that would describe the writing of many online movie journalists and bloggers like Harry Knowles. Using the thread of more films like Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin as leverage, Harry is basically saying to support this film for the betterment of a burgeoning Marvel Universe, or dare I say it, Marvel Cinematic Universe, as well as comic book movies in general. He's not reviewing the movie he just watched, instead he's trading a positive leaning opinion for the movie or movies that we could ultimately see should we choose to support X-Men with our ticket-buying dollars. Even Harry's former colleague, Drew McQueenie, treated the first X-Men film like a stray cat that he was attempting to coax out from under the car with a saucer of milk.
10: I, and I think, honestly, the, the biggest influence we had on anything was the notion that comic book cinema was a thing that should be happening, that you should be doing it, that we should be moving in that direction. We kept pushing and we kept saying, this is why and this is what you could do.
1: I wanted to make one thing clear. What Drew and the rest of the team at Ain't Cool News accomplished in terms of shepherding comic book cinema to where it is today is significant. By leading this discourse, Ain't Cool News helped convince major studios to treat comic book movies seriously. And boy, have they. Big time. But whether the team of Ain't It Cool News intended this or not, by attempting to motivate studios by way of film enthusiasm and hype, they created an infinite feedback loop. As Ain't It cool News rallied for comic book movies that were increasingly loyal to their source material, studios gave them what they wanted. More than that, according to Patrick Sorial, creator of the internet movie news website Coming Attractions, the studios began to include these websites in their official marketing campaigns. I started getting movie studios actually saying, okay, we'll we'll give you this stuff. And that was,
8: that was when it kind of changed when they, somebody sat down and said, you know, there might be an audience here and we can actually use this in some type of way. That's how I got the picture of Tobey Maguire in the Spider-Man costume. I mean, I can't, can you imagine a site getting a, can
1: you imagine a YouTube channel getting that from Sony in this day and age? And when studios released more loyal comic book movie adaptations like Sam Raimi's more colorful first Spider Man film in 2002 and the vastly improved and more continuity friendly 2003 X Men sequel, X Men 2, X Men United, websites like Coming Attractions and Ain't It Cool News rewarded the studios that made these films with even more hype.
10: Here's Drew McWheeney again. Anytime they would get close, we would try to talk about what worked, what didn't, and really say, keep coming towards the comic books. Don't be afraid of the comic books.
1: But here's something that even the most well-meaning of online movie journalists did not consider at the time. Drew McWeeny and Patrick Soriol included. Very suddenly, these journalists realized that the articles, blog posts and podcasts that were focused on these comic book movies got the most engagement from audiences. According to Patrick Soriel, when Coming Attractions debuted official studio images of Tobey Maguire wearing a Spider-Man costume, it nearly crashed his website.
8: And, and I put it up on the site and the site was just slow <laughs> because it was just getting hit for so often. And, and I knew it was going to be a big thing, but I mean, it was it was fun. That was one of the greatest things I, I, I
1: the site did. For online film journalism, there was motivation to become less about discovering movies based on new and original ideas. In other words, they became more devoted to creating content inspired by the intellectual property audiences already knew and loved. According to Rene Rodriguez, despite all the bluster and so-called democratization of media that the internet movie news sites were supposed to represent, the pursuit of audience engagement became more important than the writing or the films themselves.
2: With, I mean, one of the the big changes, well, the big change that uh, the internet brought to film coverage is it became a click count.
1: In the world of online film journalism, the movies that resulted in less engagement got less coverage. And in some cases, no coverage whatsoever. And don't get me wrong. I love articles, blog posts, and especially podcasts about comic book movies and comic book TV shows. Shoutouts to Mark Bernardin, Jason Concepcion, Van Lathan, Mallory Rubin, and Charles Holmes for bringing it every week. At the same time, I miss living in a world where there was a cinema culture that could get us just as excited about other kinds of movies. Drew McQueenie shares this feeling.
10: I think the message they took was that's all we want. And that's certainly not the case. And this is where my argument with Harry really boiled down to. We should have told them we wanted more. Like for me, City of God was just as exciting as the Iron Giant. Like, finding City of God. The first time I saw that, I was like, oh my God, that's, what an experience, what an insane thing just happened to me in a room. Our site should have been about both. It should have really pushed for a greater sense of independent voices, a greater breadth of
1: voices. When he mentioned the films City of God and the Iron Giant, Drew brought up an interesting dichotomy. Released in 2002 and directed by Brazilian filmmaker Fernando Morelos, City of God was an immersive, fictional history of gang violence in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. It was a story of surprising beauty and human compassion emerging from the cracks of a violent brutal world. For me and many people, City of God remains one of the 10 best films of the 2000s. And yet because it has no tangential relationship to comic books, science fiction, or horror films, so many people my age and younger have never watched this movie. The other film in Drew's dichotomy is a movie that a lot of people have watched. Director Brad Bird's fantastic 1999 animated feature, The Iron Giant, which owes at least part of its relevance and cachet to Ain't it Cool News and Drew McGuini specifically.
10: At the point that we wrote about Iron Giant, at the point I wrote about the work print, there were real problems at Warner Brothers. Um, they were looking to send it to home video and they were going to release it pan and scan. They were going to butcher that fucking movie. My piece was written because the production manager on that film knew that was about to happen. Showed it to me saying, if you like it, please write something. If you don't, don't say anything. What I wrote ended up getting them the time to convince Warner Brothers to release it theatrically, to finish it, to finish it correctly, to really get Warner Brothers on board. I didn't get it released theatrically, but I helped change the conversation just enough that it got them that time that they needed to finish that film correctly. And it was a huge win for us because it was a movie that I can't imagine having seen the version I saw and then
1: nobody else gets to see it. It would have broken my heart if people didn't get to see that film. Inarguably, The Iron Giant is a great movie. An animated delight of a film that makes me bawl like a kid every time that I see it.
7: You are who you choose to be.
1: At the same time, it's also the story about a giant machine that loves comic books, a descriptor I would use to describe our society right now in terms of art and culture. And if I'm going to be fully transparent, I would also say that that is how I would describe myself. I can't help but to think that it's sad, but also appropriate that the Iron Giant, this comic book-obsessed robot from the movie's title, has gone on to appear in both Ready Player One and Space Jam A New Legacy two films that I would describe as nothing more than cynical IP porn. Both of these films present a scenario where a universe populated by pre-existing characters and brands created by a multiverse of corporations coexist in the same world, as if it were a dream come true. But it also feels like purgatory, a proclamation for the death of the imagination and creativity of our species. It's also worth pointing out that the original novel for Ready Player One was written by Ernie Klein, a man who was good friends with Harry Knowles, and even based one of the characters from the book on Knowles himself. Speaking of homogenization, in terms of a lack of variety of cool news, as well as most internet movie news sites, this went beyond topics they wrote about. It also included a lack of actual diversity, as in the race and gender of the people who work for these platforms. I want to be clear and say that newspapers were never great in terms of inclusion, but there was still room for critics like this.
0: Film criticism has always been a profession populated mostly by white men and Pauline Kael.
1: That's Craig D. Lindsay. Craig Lindsay is a black film critic from Houston, Texas. Before he was laid off like many newspaper film critics, Craig actually used to write reviews for the Daily Paper in my former hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. I loved Craig's writing, in large part because he made no bones about his opinion that a lot of the movies that predominantly white audiences went crazy for were not very good. This became an issue for some readers when Craig described the Harry Potter movies as being essentially the same movie repackaged over and over again, as well as a ripoff of George Lucas's Star Wars.
0: It's like they're basically making a witchcraft version of Star Wars, of the first Star Wars like over and over again. And I mean, like, like, like Harry, Ron, and then Hermione just basically Lucan, and, and and Leia just like his all crazy thing.
1: Craig didn't think film criticism was ever a bastion for diversity, but even then, he appreciated the fact that within newspapers and magazines, unlike many first wave movie critics, there were at least some writers who were also people of color.
0: Yeah, it's funny. It's because like I didn't even know there were black film critics in the the nineties. Like, yeah, uh, like I remember. You know, hear about Elvis Mitchell, I didn't know he was an actual black dude until I saw him on CBS Nightwatch one night. Like, like, holy shit, he's a black dude. You can be a black film critic.
1: And while the internet was supposed to represent a democratization of media for all people, at least that's what I would like to think, Craig wasn't surprised when many of the first critics who emerged from Ain't It Cool News' internet movie critic revolution were more white men. But unlike print journalism, a lot of these online writers were also not very good.
0: So, yeah, so even when the whole Ain't a Cool Revolution started, just, it's just like, it's just like, just all oh, more, more white dudes. Uh, you just see just people writing about film, but it's not necessarily film criticism. It's, they're, they're, not, they're not making impressive arguments. They're not, you know, creating content worth discussing. As often they're just saying shit just to be saying it, which is, anybody can do that.
1: In terms of his website's lack of diversity, Ain't Cool News writer C. Robert Cargill says that part of this was due to the systems of privilege that continued to run largely unchecked during the 2000s. As I've mentioned on several occasions, very few people who worked for these online platforms were getting paid. Cargill himself would eventually be added to the Ain't Cool News payroll, which was exceedingly rare. However, before that happened, he spent nearly half a decade writing for the site purely for exposure which is another way of saying that he wrote for free.
7: Harry often referred to the site as the peace core of the film world. That you came in, you did your six months to a year, and then you went on to where you wanted to be in the industry after using what credit you got. That was never what I was there for. I did go on to have a career as a result, you know, as a direct result of Any Cool News, but that wasn't why I was there, I was there to be read. At its peak, we were the most widely read group of film critics in the world. If you Googled yourself, you'd find people Talking about your review in Italian, and it's like, as a writer, that's the dream, is to connect with audiences
1: that you will never meet. We will explore the ethics of building an online news company on the back of unpaid labor in a future episode. As for the fact that so few women or people of color wrote for online publications, and specifically Ain't It Cool News... Cargill says this wasn't a matter of discrimination. He says it was a byproduct of the same systemic oppression that limits diversity and inclusion in most industries, which utilize unpaid internships in order for people to get ahead.
7: I mean, one of the big things that nobody really talks about was Harry had a very big push for diversity on the site. Harry was always trying to hire women onto the site. He was trying to keep people of color on the site. But the reason why his core around him were white men were not what you would think is that, you know, well, white men hire white men. It was that we were the ones that were willing to stick around for free. And if we stuck around long enough for free, we'd get paid. I mean, he, he had a, an open thing like, hey, if you find any women or people of color who are writing, you know, who are good, send them my way because we need them. But because he wasn't paying, people were like, I got to go and get jobs. And so uh, he lost out on a lot of really great talent. A lot of people who could have been great long-term writers had he been able to pay them.
1: This logic sucks and does not in any way excuse the world of online movie journalism. And yet it's part of the same problem baked into most arts and entertainment industries, from filmmaking and fashion to television and video games where part of the dues one must pay in order to get a foot into either of these industries is an unpaid internship. Kate Erblind, now an editor for IndieWire, who we will discuss in great detail in two episodes from now, says that the lack of diversity in online entertainment journalism is still a problem today, not only in terms of race, but gender and sexual identity, among other factors.
11: Anytime you can read something from someone who has a different experience than you, a different background than you, that is what anyone should want out of any cultural criticism or cultural reporting, because it just expands your brain. And I think that a lot of people have been really resistant to that and have enjoyed reading things from people who are very much like them and are uncomfortable with the kind of growth that comes with breaking out of that bubble. I think it's getting better, but it's not great. Like anytime there's a new survey about it, it's like film criticism is still overwhelmingly white and male.
1: Kate adds that the biggest way for the industry to address this diversity problem is to put its money where its mouth is.
11: get excited when I actually see actionable change, like um, when these bigger festivals like Sundance or South by I have... Um, you know or basically doing grants and doing uh stipends to get especially younger critics from different backgrounds in to be able to come and cover these things because i remember again when i had a completely different full-time job and i would go to south by for fun and i was able to finance that because of my job but for people who are really earnestly trying to break in and don't have something to fall back on like that it's invaluable so talk's good action is better (laughs)
1: Another way that the unpaid status of so many online film journalists affected their work is that it made many of them easy marks for studio publicists. When Rene Rodriguez worked as a film critic for the Miami Herald and studios invited him to attend media events, there was a safeguard in place. His publication covered his travel expenses instead of the studio. That way his loyalties as a writer lay with the readers of his publication and not the large company trying to sell their film to millions of potential moviegoers. Rene says the studio's name for this policy was POW, which stands for Paid Own Way. Where, and the Herald
2: was a POW paper where we pay our own way. So if I'm going to interview Oliver Stone and Natural Born Killers and the junket is at the Regency, the studio would fly you there for free and they would put you up for free. And they would give you a stipend. But the Herald, no, we have to pay for everything ourselves. That way there's no conflict of interest.
1: But when unpaid journalists from Internet Movie News websites attended the same media events and junkets, POW was not an option. After all, many of these same websites could not pay these writers for their work. So how on earth could these same outlets be expected to cover travel expenses? The answer? They didn't, leaving studios more than happy to pick up that tab. And this is where the quote from Pauline Kael that film critic Renee Rodriguez mentioned earlier in this episode comes into play, that the role of a film critic is to stand between an audience and a film's marketing department. For studio publicists, this created what had to feel like an ideal scenario. An army of Harry Knowleses, or Harry Knowli, who could just be wine, dine, wowed, and seduced. Just like Harry was when he was flown to attend the premieres of the 1998 Godzilla film, as well as Armageddon which we talked about in episode 3 of this program. Just stop for a second and think about these online movie news writers. Many were totally unpaid for their work, and they were also probably working side jobs in order to make ends meet. And in that scenario, a studio-paid trip to hang out with movie stars and filmmakers probably feels like a great vacation. The studio covers your flight, your hotel, and usually a hefty per diem. According to Betsy Pickle, most studios gave out a lot of swag at these events. A fact she could often use as a litmus test for the quality of movies she was supposed to write about.
9: I mean, some of the best tchotchkes you got for the worst films. It was so sad because you're like, I really want this movie to be good because I love this, whatever it is, but you know, the movie kind of sucks, so.
1: The studio spent a lot on online journalists and bloggers to cover their movies. And those expenses most certainly came with expectations attached. This was a lesson that former Ain't News writer Alan Cerny learned when Disney Pixar flew him to Skywalker Ranch in Mary County, California. That's where he attended the Junket for the 2011 animated sequel, Cars 2. Alan remembers being so nervous about this trip, in part because he was a huge Star Wars nerd, and the chance to visit Skywalker Ranch was something he had always dreamed of doing. Almost like a pilgrimage to Israel or Mecca, but for nerds.
12: They put you on a bus and they drive you to Skywalker Ranch. Skywalker Ranch, you're the place where Star Wars was created. It's George Lucas's farm. You pull in, there's a big statue in the front you know, of Yoda in, in front of the building. You turn and there's Lake Ewok. You can walk around Lake Ewok if you want to. There's a gift shop. I bought stuff at the gift shop. Of course I am a Star Wars fan. I'm going to buy stuff at the Skywalker Ranch gift shop. I got a Skywalker Ranch t-shirt.
1: But another reason Alan was nervous is because part of his trip would include a one-on-one interview with John Lasseter co-founder of Pixar, and the director of such films as Toy Story 1 and 2, A Bug's Life, and Cars 1 and 2. Waiting in the green room, he meets several now legendary employees who worked for Lucasfilm, including sound effects artist Ben Burtt. You know it's Ben Burtt because you recognize his voice, and then you realize this is the guy who
12: designed all the sounds I love in Star Wars. The the lightsaber hum, the uh, the, the laser blast, R2-T2's voice, and he's just sitting there talking to people.
1: Then finally, Alan has his one-on-one with John Lasseter.
12: And you're so excited because you get to geek out with somebody who is a a legitimate filmmaker, a major filmmaker, one of the biggest filmmakers in cinema history. And you sit down and you start talking about this movie that he's made, Cars 2, and he he is guiding the questions, I'll I'll say. He he wants to talk about his film. And you're having this conversation and it feels like you're talking to a
1: colleague. We're going to take a break from Alan's story about John Lasseter just for a moment to talk about another filmmaker. I've heard so many stories about filmmakers and producers doing everything they can to seduce the writers of online movie news websites, and specifically Ain't It Cool News. But during an interview with Ain't It Cool News writer Jeremy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Beeks, no one went further or crossed more lines than this filmmaker who made such films as
8: and uh. I think he he tried to seduce pretty much every member of the uh, website. Uh, I think he succeeded with some of them. Not me. I, I hated his guts. I really couldn't stand the guy. But he definitely he was one of those guys who would, and other websites like he would bring people to set visits and he give he'd get them big per diems. Uh, he'd try and get them drunk. Try and get them like laid. He would get people laid. He he would uh, he yeah he'd, he'd certainly have the opportunity. I. I never had those kind of offers, but I know people who did, yeah. He'd have women sent up to hotel rooms and shit like that, sure. Yeah.
1: This alleged exchange that involved transactional sex reveals two things. First of all, what p***er <laughs> might have thought about women. This, of course, has already been widely reported during several occasions when the director was accused of misconduct. It also reveals what <laughs> might have thought about these film critics, too. That they were commodities who could be exploited for his own gain see robert cargill adds that when he and his former colleagues at an equal news were flown out to these events to hang out with filmmakers who did everything they could to convince them that they were friends that it presented a test for one's character and it would seem that this is a test that many online movie journalists failed
7: what you choose to do with that after you realize that's where the position you're in is what really defines what kind of journalist you would become. If you would become one of the scumbag sleazeballs who would use that to, you know, get whatever you you wanted out of it, or whether you took that as a responsibility.
1: I should also mention that Jeremy Smith's story about was also completely different from the experience that POW newspaper film critics like Betsy Pickle had when they attended the same events.
9: I was sleeping on friends' floors and futons and in you know, flea bag hotels. And there was a place I found in Beverly Hills. I was like, ooh, Beverly Hills. It was really cheap. And I went to sleep. And when I woke up, I had a six inch scratch on my leg from where a spring had poked through (laughs) the sheet. And uh, when I got home, I had to get a rabies or tetanus shot, I mean.
1: You could joke around and say that Betsy's experience doesn't sound as great as staying in a much nicer hotel or getting laid, courtesy of But for Betsy, the trade-off in terms of obligation is that she owed nothing to the studio.
9: It was not glamorous, but I've, I was really glad I had that sort of independence. and Because some of the studios tried to keep me in check a couple of times.
1: Going back to Alan Cerny, this sense of independence was perhaps the last thing the writer felt as he neared the end of his studio funded interview with John Lasseter for Cars 2.
12: But that was my fault because I thought I was talking to an equal and I was never talking to an equal. I was always talking to a multi, uh, a billionaire, a billionaire artist. And uh, I was a guy who was there to sell his product.
1: I've known Alan Cerny for almost a year now. And one of the things I appreciate most about him is that unlike so many critics who embrace the finality of their opinions or ideas forever and ever, he can admit when he was wrong. Alan admits that he learned a hard lesson that day. But like the main character in the Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous, if Alan allowed himself to think that he was a colleague or friend to the people who flew him out to these publicity events, it would make it difficult for him to write about the only thing that's really worth reading. The truth. Uh,
12: It it shook me really hard. I didn't like doing many interviews after that.
1: But not everyone who writes about movies for online publications learns this lesson. I'm not going to call anyone out, but there have been many times where I've read articles by online journalists who are writing about these huge media events they attended on a studio's dime, only to then perform feats of word ninjutsu in order to avoid saying what was so obvious, that the movie they were writing about is terrible. So what are the effects of losing professional paid film criticism simultaneously during a surge of unpaid internet film criticism? On the upside, there are a lot more reviews now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. A lot more. Written by a lot of very different people from a diverse range of backgrounds and were better off because of it. Very recently, there was a great discourse around the presentation of racism against Asians in the Paul Thomas Anderson film Licorice Pizza. Some people seemed angry that the conversation even began, but I'm glad it did. It was an important conversation about film that would have been largely ignored even 10 years ago. But the downside is this. The number of films that many film journalists seem excited to write about or discuss is now dramatically smaller. As a result of what I call the Harry Knowles effect, this new wave of mostly white, mostly male, self-proclaimed movie geeks have made it abundantly clear what kinds of movies they like. Comic book films, action films, scary movies, and films based on video games and old action figures. I'm not saying that women and gender non-binary people don't like these kinds of movies too, but you can't ignore the fact that our cinema culture has become nearly all but dominated by movies based on brands and intellectual properties that, at one point, were aggressively marketed towards young boys in the 1980s and 90s. It's so focused on the past, and on nostalgia. Earlier we had mentioned that former Annette Cool News contributor Patton Oswalt, aka Neil Cumston, was the voice of Remy the Rat in the Disney Pixar film Ratatouille, which like the Iron Giant, was directed by Brad Bird. The movie is about Remy's dreams of becoming a great chef in Paris, and the main antagonist is Anton Ego, an aptly named food critic who holds massive sway over all of the restaurants in the city. During a pivotal moment in the film, Anton shares this insight into his work as a critic.
9: The bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends.
1: When many newspaper film critics lost their jobs, I would argue that we as a culture lost our friends of the new. And even if you do love comic book and big IP movies as much as I do, the landscape which turned movies like Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Rocky, Back to the Future, or even the Fast and Furious movies into viable brands has largely been destroyed. That's not to say that there aren't websites or online writers like C. Robert Cargill that generate articles or content devoted to promoting new films.
7: It's one of the things I try to do with my Twitter feed is share these small, you know, independent films made by these great up and coming filmmakers, but bloggers aren't talking about them because it doesn't drive traffic. And they're all about the traffic because they have to meet those standards. That's, that was the big failure of internet culture is it it's now become uh, about how much traffic is a thing getting And people will write about this stuff, but nobody will click on it. Nobody will share it. And that's the problem with internet culture.
1: I want to make one thing clear. As a fan of comic books, I love movies like The Dark Knight, Avengers Endgame, and the most recent box office hit, Spider-Man No Way Home. But as a movie fan, and as someone who enjoys films catered by and for a variety of perspectives, I have to admit that I feel conflicted. And for Betsy Pickle, who is not a fan of comic books or graphic novels, it's safe to say her feelings go beyond that.
9: I've never liked comic books and I've never been interested in graphic novels. So I'm just out of the mainstream. I mean, I, I accept that. I think it's fine to be out of the mainstream. I'm fine with that, but don't take away the things that I like to enjoy. And I feel like that's what they've been doing. They've been sucking the air out of the film industry.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to add that in no way am I saying that Harry Knowles or Ain't it Cool News are responsible for the many film critics like Betsy Pickle, Felicia Feaster, Craig Lindsay, or Renee Rodriguez, who lost or were pressured to leave their jobs. But watching what happens as we continue to move further away from the era of Pauline Kael, which ended when she retired in 1991, and further into the era of Harry Knowles, which began when he launched Ain't It Cool News five years after that, the world of cinema seems unbalanced, smaller, and truthfully, kind of boring. Perhaps no one expresses this sentiment better than the one person you could argue created this movement. And no, I'm not talking about Harry Knowles. I'm talking about the all-but-forgotten true inventor of online movie geek culture. I'm talking about Patrick Soriel, who launched Corona Coming Attractions, the internet's first movie news website, in 1995. Every single superhero movie is going to be done in the next 20 years. We've
8: seen CGI films of the world freezing, burning up being blown apart like there's almost nothing left to do right so you know all that talk about like oh wouldn't it be great to cast who's going to be an x-men or it's already done there's nine movies all the christmas presents have been opened like we've been given everything that we wanted as a movie community in the last
1: 20 25 years and so it's hard to get excited about things anymore I interviewed Patrick Sorrell more than a year ago from the time we were able to finish and release this episode, but his quote always stuck with me. It reflects the greatest truth about the Harry Knowles era of cinema culture more than anything I could ever say, from the very person who inspired Harry Knowles to create his own website in the first place. Going back to that brief, televised duel of words that transpired between Harry Knowles and Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect in 2001, when Bill Maher said there was no criteria for who gets to be movie critics, I am now fully convinced that the talk show host was absolutely right. There was no criteria for who got to be a movie critic, a fact which has become only more true now, in large part because of Harry Knowles. But after that exchange, Bill Maher added something else. And for this, I'm going to play an actual clip from the show. After Harry Knowles' comeback, where he told Bill Maher that there was no criteria for talk show hosts either, Bill Maher had this to say. That's not true. Well,
6: and the thing is... Because
1: I could do your job, you couldn't do mine. I've got my own show coming up. You've got your own show? Try it against mine, see how the ratings go. At the time of this exchange, Harry Knowles wasn't lying. He did have a deal in place to make a show for Comedy Central. And as we'll find out in the next episode of this program, Harry Knowles' foray into the world of television would pretty much go as well as Bill Maher thought it would. And while Harry Knowles chased his dreams of making a TV show, a book, and other endeavors that we will discuss later, the internet movie geek revolution that Harry catapulted into the mainstream would eventually move on without him. Of you and me. The Part 5 of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Annick Cool News, titled The Ghost of Neil Cumston, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, production assistance by Reese Allen, and online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, Jaylee Atkinson as the voice of Bill Maher, and Jake Stewart as the voice of Neil Cumston, a.k.a. Patton Oswald. Music credits include original theme and other songs by Chester Indersby-Guazda, as well as other songs by Volante, Pollyanna Maxim, Telmo Telmo, Ruben Cortez, frederick ekstrom eldre des moran and william bjork also the song you're listening to right now is at the movies on quaaludes by the flaming lips from their fantastic new album american head please rate and review us it helps a lot download the rise and fall of harry Knowles and ain't it cool news is produced by mixtape media make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com that's download with a w instead of an a pod is in podcast.com there you can read show notes ask a question and even leave a message that can be played on the air. For the next chapter in the story, we will delve into Anit Cool News' last great scoop, the frequently talked success pool that was Anit Cool News' message boards, and lastly, the rift that would forever break a key relationship that was at the core of Anit Cool News. All of this and more, so join us then as we dial up, log on, and download.
12: File's done. Goodbye.